Good morning. Thank you for joining us today. Let's pray. Father, everyone is here this morning with their own agenda. I have mine. Every person here has theirs. We want to pause and say, let your agenda reign in our hearts. What you would speak to us, how you would challenge us, how you would teach us. Lord, we call you Lord. We want to receive you as Lord and pray that you would be Lord of this moment. May you be glorified in Jesus' name. Amen. I've been married about 10 minutes before I figured out that things that passionately matter to me may not matter to my wife. I talk in my sacred marriage seminars about how one of the things that were most frustrating to me when I first got married were ice cube trays. Uh, I grew up in a family where if you got out an ice cube, you're supposed to refill the tray and put it back in the freezer so the next person has a completely full tray of ice cubes. And I'm convinced that's the biblical way you handle yourself in the kitchen. I'm convinced of that. But my wife grew up in a family, run that thing down to a nice chip, right? If there's something you could scrape off with a knife, there's still, still technically ice there, and she'd put it back. And I had a really bad habit back then. Lisa since cured me. I had to have my daily Pepsi. And when you have a daily Pepsi and you got a little ice chip, it just immediately melts. And I couldn't get through to my wife how much of my joy and happiness depended on having this nice full tray of ice cubes. So one night she was speaking romantically and I saw my chance. And I'm such an idiot. But here's what she said. Gary, I'm going to love you forever. I said, honey, I don't need you to love me forever. I need you to love me for seven seconds. So she goes, what are you talking about? I said, I timed how long it takes to fill the ice cube trays and to put them back. I know, pathetic. But then we found out that there were things that really mattered to Lisa that didn't matter to me. Back when we lived in Bellingham, Washington, sort of a small town at the time, about 75,000, a small town. I saw on our calendar in a month or two ahead, TJ with a big circle. I said, well, what's up with that? She goes, Trader Joe's is coming to town. This was big news all over Bellingham. Trader Joe's was coming to town and all the wives of the church were talking about it. I kid you not, the mayor was there to cut the ribbon. The local radio station did that live spot right outside. Everybody's talking about it. Lisa said you couldn't even get into the parking lot the day it opened. Everybody was so excited. Finally, Bellingham, Washington had Trader Joe's and my wife was there on opening day. About six weeks later, we were coming home from something. Lisa said, hey, I, I need to pick up some produce or something. You mind if we stop by Trader Joe's? I said, no, that'd be great. I haven't been there yet. She goes, you haven't been to Trader Joe's? I said, honey, it's a grocery store. She says, well, I'm so excited. It's so great. Finally, you're going to get to see Trader Joe's. So we go, and you just have to understand, because of the buildup, I'm kind of expecting something that will wow me. I'm expecting gold bricks down every aisle, heavenly choirs serenading me, you know, heavenly dust coming down. Instead, I walk down, it's kind of a smallish, funky, organic-leaning grocery store. And I didn't get it. Now, I didn't know how to evaluate it because Lisa was off getting food, and I'm not really allowed to buy those kinds of foods because I don't read the labels carefully enough, and I bring the wrong things into our house. But there's one thing I've always bought in our family. It's always been my job and that's toilet paper. If you need help with toilet paper purchasing, I'm your guy. One ply, two ply, don't even bother with one ply. 
why lotion is great in theory, why it doesn't work in practice, I could explain that to you. How you have to be careful, you need to know squares per inch because what happens on the cheap brands, they will wrap it loosely so it looks big, but it's just a lie. So you want a tightly wrapped roll, you know how to balance strength and size. I'm your guy, I know toilet paper. And so I thought, well, I'll see what they do on that. So I go down the paper aisle, they only had one option. And the marketing option was 100% recycled. And I thought, ew, I mean, look, I, I care about the environment, all right? I, I, I love the out of doors, but when it comes to toilet paper, I don't like to think of it being recycled. I prefer my toilet paper to be fresh. I, I kind of want it straight from the tree. That's what makes me want to buy my toilet paper. So when you figure out you're in a marriage and you got, and you just realize there are things that we just feel passionately about that, that are different. What helps draw the two of you back together? The answer is this, that we have to find our premier passion. Our most important passion needs to be something that can draw us together. It is more important than any other passion, whether it's ice cube trays, toilet paper, or Trader Joe's what will draw us together. And Jesus tells us what that passion should be. It's true for every single, it's true for every divorced, widowed, every married person. Jesus lays it out for us, Matthew 6, Seek first the kingdom of God. I've mentioned this verse so many times. I've got a poster in my office. Somebody wonderful here made me just this beautiful calligraphy of that verse because it's the key of my life that I wake up as you wake up. It should not be about our reputation, our advancement, our wealth accumulation, our happiness. It's God, I'm here. How are you going to build your kingdom through me today? That's what we are to live for. That's what we were made for. I mentioned this in the talk to singles, um, and I want to mention it again because so often it's presented as if we can be single for God. That's why you choose to be single, right? To be sold out for God, to have more time for God. But the implication then is, but then we can be married for ourselves. But Jesus didn't say Matthew 6.33, except if you're married. I would say it's just as, if not even more important for married people, because if we're not seeking first the kingdom of God, it's the greatest way to torpedo what otherwise has been an excellent marriage, being married simply for ourselves. In fact, I find that that's why so many couples drift, not because there's some big sin or big discovery or something that they just can't get over. I wish it was like that. So often it's so much more mundane. They just admit to me, Gary, we're just bored with each other. We know each other's stories. We're just bored. I, I just don't want to be around them anymore. And that should tell us something. What it tells us is that we were made for more than marriage. We were made for more than each other. We will all become bored. It doesn't matter who we're married to. It doesn't matter how long we'll be single. We will become bored if we're not seeking first the kingdom of God, which means singles, I want to ask you this question. Remember I said about a month ago, it's not that helpful, I believe, to ask, does God want me to marry this person or is this person the one? Singles, I hope you'll write this down. You wanna know one of the most important questions to ask before you get married? If boredom destroys so many marriages, one of the most important questions you can ask, what is she living for? What is he living for? That's what sets you up for an exciting, fulfilling marriage 
that you will thank God for at the end of your days. Because the barrier that we're talking about here is boredom. It's a part of life. The breakthrough is mission. Every marriage, every individual needs a mission. And what that mission does for married couples is that it pulls us together so that we have something to talk about. We have a reason for being together. Kevin and Karen Miller discovered this about three years into their marriage. They talk about in their book, More Than Me and You. When life was exciting, they ended up getting married. And here's what Karen says. When Kevin popped the question, will you marry me? No one asked us a bigger question. Why do you want to get married? At the time, the question would have bordered on blasphemy. After all, Kevin and I were in love. Anyone could see that. We shared a commitment to Christ. Who needed better reasons than those? Everyone. Because three years into their marriage, there was just this listlessness. It's not that they hated each other. It's not that they were upset with it. It's just like, is this really all there is? Then their pastor, their church said, we really need somebody to take over the the, the youth group. We think you might be the one. They kind of knew the kids in the youth group and thought, man, we might need police protection if we work with these kids. But they prayed about it. They felt led that they should do it. And they were shocked at what happened. It was brutal at times. Here's what she said. The group literally drove us to our knees. Before each event, we began to pray for the youth and for ourselves The group also forced Kevin and me to talk more than we had since we dated. We needed to plan together and present a united front to the kids. Catch this. As we did, we found out a lot about each other. Isn't that what makes dating so exciting? Oh, really? And you did that and you grew up with that and you had that? I mean, understanding new things, it, it creates excitement. But then we get married. We have this shared history. We feel like there's nothing new to discover. But that's because we're looking back. And not forward. See, missional intimacy isn't built on discovering each other's past. It's built on discovering the future that God is carving out for the two of you. What if you don't know your spouse as well as you think? If you never imagine the future? Karen again. In the end, the biggest surprise was that through the process, something good was happening to our marriage. We were working together at something. When we failed, at least it was our failure. And when we succeeded, it was our success. During most of each workday, we were miles apart. But when we led the youth group, we were arm in arm and heart in heart. They respected each other in new ways because they saw God using each other in new ways. When Lisa and I became empty nesters, she started joining me for almost every premarital session, and I'd been doing this for years, and now she was a part of it. There's a couple we were meeting with, and this was the first session. It's one of those times where God just really moves. I mean, the Holy Spirit was just present. I just saw in, okay, this is what's going on with her. This is what's going on with him. You see these family issues. This is what they're going to, and it was just like, boom, boom, boom. They're like, yeah, yeah, then they're writing it down. And it's not always like that. It's not usually like that. A lot of times I'll come home and tell Lisa, man, I don't feel like I'm helping this couple at all. I just don't think, but sometimes God really shows up. And this was one of those times. And we're walking away and it was funny because Lisa looks at me and she goes, man, you're really good at this. No, I'm, I'm not. The spirit showed up. But here's the thing, guys. You want your wife to respect you more? Offer yourself to God. Because when you offer yourself to God, he equips you. He empowers you. 
you get the credit. Wives, you think your husband is condescending that he doesn't think you're all that? Offer yourself to God and let him be shocked at all that that God is in you. That's what the Millers discovered. What a puzzle, she said. The youth group ministry, which by all rights should have pulled our marriage apart, actually bonded it in a new level of intimacy. Without trying to work on our marriage at all, it had become richer and deeper. They built their marriage by doing something outside of their marriage. Now, I'm not, trust me, of all the people in this room, I'm not against you going to a marriage conference now and then. Out of all the people in this room, I'm not against you reading a marriage book now and again. I think it's a good thing to do. There's an author too I would like to recommend that you might consider doing that. But working on your marriage like that, a good thing to do, that's like watering a plant. And you need to water plants, but plants need more than water. I found this out. I moved to a new office here where I didn't have a window anymore. And I had to get one of these lights. Because plants need light, not just water. Working on your marriage is watering the plant. That's good. But mission is the light that helps your plant continue to grow and be healthy. It's what the Millers discovered. They call it a third hunger of marriage. It's from the book of Genesis that marriage is for first companionship. Genesis 2.18. It's not good for man to be alone. Second, it's for raising children. Be fruitful and multiply. But the third thing is also 128, and that's joint fulfilling service. God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and multiply. Okay, that's have kids. But here's the next part. Fill the earth. Subdue it. Rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky and over every living thing that moves on the earth. It's the Old Testament's Matthew 6.33. The difference is the Old Testament says, build the earth. Jesus says, Build my kingdom. That's the shift we have to make as believers. We were meant to build God's kingdom just as Adam and Eve were meant to build God's earth. Karen, again, we hunger for this today. Cooperating together, meshing, working like a mountain climbing team, ascending the peak of our dream. I love this. And then holding each other at the end of the day. God has planted this hunger deep within every married couple. It's more than a hunger for companionship. It's more than a hunger to create new life. It's a third hunger. A hunger to do something significant together. According to God's word, we were joined to make a difference. We were married for a mission. See, what Jesus said about individuals, lose your life to save it. If you try to save your life, you'll lose it. Just as true for couples. You save your marriage by losing it, saying we're going to risk our marriage by making it a marriage for others, not just ourselves. And in doing that, you save it. Now, because marriage is a long relationship, you don't have just one mission. I love the way Elton Trueblood wrote about this, that you live your life in chapters. There's a chapter of your singleness if you get married, the chapter when you're first married and then you have kids and then empty nesters and whatnot. We've got to be faithful to the chapter we're in. But you start to get an identity as a couple. Maybe you're one of those athletic couples. You're involved in all those athletic events. But you're there not just to win games. You're there to win hearts for Jesus. And you're prayerful. And you're strategic in what teams you lead and how you talk to the other parents. 
Or maybe you're one of those business couples. God has really blessed your business. You got these things going, but you realize there's more than earthly profits to be considered about. We want to talk to people about heavenly rewards. Or you're the musical couple and you have so much respect because you're so talented and gifted but you want them to hear the heavenly choirs, not just your music. And so you always have this ear open to how God might use you. Or you're the Bible study couple where your real focus for ministries might even be right here, leading a Bible study, praying, getting into God's word, helping each other refine your talks and keeping an open eye for how others need to hear that. That's what will serve your marriage, even though it isn't focused on your marriage. A woman wrote to Marriage Partnership saying this, over 10 years of marriage, I found that when my husband and I focus on our own needs and whether they're being met, our marriage begins to self-destruct. But when we're ministering together, we experience to the greatest extent we've ever known that the two will become one. Now, I stress this because the barrier of boredom is most often misdiagnosed. We experience boredom, we hate boredom, but we misdiagnose what's causing it. And I want to say this with sensitivity, but I got to tell you, sometimes as a pastor, it's a little difficult when I have a man or a woman in my office or together living in a 6,000 square foot home, taking all of these European vacations. I say, we're just, we're just not happy because I'll never forget a trip that changed my life, taking my son when he was just 12 years old to South Africa, I had a chance to minister there. They took us in Johannesburg to what's called Soweto. It's just a, a series of makeshift shacks. You've got the picture up there. You know the reason there are rocks on the roof? To try to keep the, rock, the roof on. And these are as makeshift as you could get, or at least they were when we were there uh, 15 years ago. And we watched as these women, they didn't have plumbing. They would walk blocks to one single spigot where there's a line and they would have vessels and they're filling up their water and then they carry it back to their shack. And I wanna say, you know, there are a lot of people in this world, they don't have time to be unhappy. They spend all their time trying not to be hungry and trying not to be thirsty. Prosperity is a blessing. We shouldn't feel guilty about it. If God has given you that, great. Just recognize it comes with spiritual risks and spiritual challenges that can lead us to that boredom. And the worst thing to do when you experience boredom as a barrier is to say, it's because I'm single. If I'm married, then I wouldn't be bored. Or I'm married to the wrong person. If I was married to someone else, I wouldn't be bored. No, it's not whether you're married or who you're married to. It's your mission. You're married to the wrong mission. You're seeking first your kingdom and not God's. And that's where you find the breakthrough. Hebrews 10.24 says this, let us consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds. And a lot of you get in discussions on your marriage saying, why can't you do this for me? And there might be a place for that at times. But when's the last time you've gotten together and said, Why can't we do this for God? Think back in your marriage. Do you spend more time, why can't you do this for me? Or do you spend more time as a couple, why don't we do this for God? That tells you which kingdom you're seeking. If the barrier is boredom and the breakthrough is mission, 
The road back to each other is the road back to capturing the mission. Lisa and I have friends, there are a couple, a great couple, Terry and David, that have had to face this in a severe way. What struck us when we first started meeting with them is you hear couples say, here's how we fell in love. And with them, it was, we fell in lust. They're not even pretending otherwise. They said it was just lust. They were very young. The sexual chemistry was high. They were always at each other. They got married way too young. Didn't do really any business about figuring out is this a good match or not. They just got married, immediately started having kids, had two kids, and suddenly lust doesn't do so well when you have two small kids and bills that aren't paid. It goes out the window. And they started hating each other. David admits, look, I had more mouths to feed, more bills to pay. He was on the road more often than not. Often would leave Sunday night as a salesman, come back Friday evening. And it was a relief because they would yell at each other. They would scream at each other. Their disappointment with each other was palpable. They just didn't even like to be together. Eventually, not too surprising, in the midst of this emotional detachment, Terry had an affair. Now, I want to pause here. This is sort of one of those extras. Because as I'm preparing this, I believe God's Spirit might have helped me see that some of you might be on the progression of Terry's slipping into an affair. I want you to receive this love from God saying you don't have to go where Terry did. I want you to recognize where you're at in this stage. You can step back. You don't have to be another casualty because Terry will tell you she didn't have an affair because she fell in love with another guy. There was, there was nothing like that. She didn't have an affair because it was just lust and she just had to have him and he was so magnetic. There was nothing like that. It was a gradual descent and it began that she lived so long with the blatant unfulfilled desire just to be wanted by her husband and she wasn't. And it's dangerous to just let your marriage stay at that level. Couples usually seek marital counseling way too late. It's after the affair, after the blow up. If you recognize this isn't working, to not seek help right away is to set yourself up. Because see, living for a long time, as one country song says, there's a difference between being lonely and lonely for way too long. Terry was lonely for way too long, which set her up to be wooed. When a coworker starts to woo her, she says, oh, this feels different. Maybe I like that. And that set her up to start seeking this coworker out whenever he was in the building, just to talk. Nothing untoward going on, but hey, she kind of likes being wooed. She kind of likes to talk, which set her up to receive his flirtations when he started to give them instead of being offended. She didn't say anything, which set her up to let him kiss her when they were a bar at a bar after work one evening, which set her up to spend an afternoon in a hotel. It was gradual steps to her affair. Affairs frequently are, not always, but they're entered into by little steps. Little steps can carry us a long way from our spouse. Little betrayals aren't little. They're big betrayals. You should consider every little step away from your spouse as a dangerous point. Because it's like somebody's just taking a little step over a mountain made of ice. It's just one little step. Once you start sliding, it's hard to stop. 
lying and hiding are to marriage what murder is to the body. Lying and hiding are to marriage what murder is to the body. I don't want to be too graphic, but you can murder a body, shoot somebody in the head, it's over, or you can murder someone with a thousand tiny cuts and they bleed out. Lying and hiding is the thousand tiny cuts that bleeds the life out of your marriage. Terry eventually confessed the affair of three months to David. She'd had a renewal with God, realized it wasn't right, and David was furious. His whole world was crashing down. Everything he had lived for, he tried to provide. He was so angry. He said the marriage was over. And then a number of men came in his life and tried to introduce him to Jesus. And he says, I don't even know if there is a God. He doesn't know me. But he, he was so just blown apart that he agreed to go to a church. And he says, I sat in the back and the pastor just spoke into my soul. He started reading the Bible. He became a Christian and he realized he couldn't just leave. But here's the thing, it didn't save his marriage because he was saved, Terry was saved, but they didn't have purpose. You could be a Christian in a very unhappy marriage because you were made for more than salvation. You were made to seek first the kingdom of God. And so while they knew they were with the Lord and where they would go when they died, they still didn't like each other and they pretty much accepted, okay, we're not gonna get a divorce until the kids move out and then we're done. But God had other plans. They agreed to chaperone the youth group to a mountain skiing trip. They were delayed leaving the trip in the afternoon. One of the people was late and the driver was furious because he was supposed to meet up with another driver. And to punish him, he started careening down the mountain, a ski mountain, lost control, drove the bus over the cliff. We've got a picture here. The top of the bus was entirely ripped off and 65 youth and three adults, including Terry and David and their two children, were thrown all over the side of the mountain. Three people died. Almost all the passengers were seriously wounded. Terry was among the worst. She was right in front of the bus. She had a shattered hip, a broken spine in several places, multiple broken ribs, serious head wounds. David woke up with two broken arms, broken ribs, torn ligaments, a really bad head wound that immediately gave him amnesia. He was just torn apart as well. They got him to the hospital, and when he finally woke up, I mean, we're talking days later, he was confused. And he said to the Lord, in that moment of uncertainty, I began praying out loud, God, why did you allow this to happen? It doesn't make sense. He had been screaming at God, why do I have to be in this marriage? Why would you give me a wife that's unfaithful to me? Why does a woman do this? And now he was asking God, what's going on? What's, what's behind this? And God spoke. David sensed he heard God saying this, you're done. You're done, David. You're done with your career, your money, your toys, your selfishness, your bitterness, your unforgiveness. You're done. You need to find Terry and tell her that you forgive her and love her and that you guys have a future together. 
David sat on that for two days until they wheeled him into what they said was his wife's room. Because that's not my wife. Her head was so bloated. He goes, that can't be Terry. They said, no, it's Terry. He says, all right, everybody get out. And he made everybody get out. Now, Terry's not conscious. But David leaned over and he whispered into her ear. Terry, I don't know if you can hear me. But I need you to know I totally forgive you for the affair. I am so in love with you. We can have a future together. It took Terry multiple surgeries in four months to get out of the hospital. In the meantime, David, who was an executive at Hewlett Packard, when he came back, they wanted to keep him. They called him in and said, David, here's the deal. Anything you want is yours. If you want Asia, it's yours. You want Europe, it's yours. Just tell us where you want to go. We're going to send you there. And David shocked his VP by saying this, Don, I'm, I'm done. I said, what? I'm done. I believe in my heart that God has called me into full-time vocational ministry. They sold everything, the 6,000 square foot home on a golf course. There are multiple really nice cars, most of their possessions. They bought a huge RV, started going around the country for an itinerant marriage ministry. Today, they have a lot less stuff and a much better marriage. I got a picture of them with their marriage, a very unique marriage ministry, just a wonderful couple. But let, please hear me with this. Please hear me on this. I am not, not, not saying quit your secular job and go into full-time ministry. Monstrous misapplication. God may say, please don't. You're right where you need to be. I am not one of those that thinks vocational ministry is above secular ministry. That is not biblical. It's not true. The, the principle is the barrier is boredom. The breakthrough is mission. That doesn't mean you leave your job. It means you leave your selfishness. It means if you are living for yourself, you stop living for yourself and then let God tell you where you are to live for him. Because you were made for more than yourself. You were made for more than your marriage. The principle is the same as David's. Get rid of boredom by focusing on mission, but the application might be very different. We met with Terry near the start of this year. She's like a girl with a schoolgirl cross. They've been married 30 years. She said, Gary, 2020 was the best year of our marriage. Now, their marriage ministry people, almost everything was canceled. And that's their income. How, how is it that COVID-19 that just shattered so many business and lives is their best year? Because they're seeking first the kingdom of God. And when you live first for the kingdom of God, financial scarcity, health problems, rebellious kids, unemployment, they hurt. Yeah, they really hurt. But they don't find, define you. Because your marriage isn't based on prosperity, successful kids, health, job satisfaction. Your marriage is based on the glory of God. And you glorify God every day when you're seeking first his kingdom. You want to be happy as a single? You want to be happy as a married couple? Seek first the kingdom of God and 
his righteousness and Jesus promises. And I trust Jesus. I believe Jesus. I believe these are the truest words you will ever hear. They're not mine. And all these things will be added unto you as well.